Welcome to the animation industry podcast. My name is Terry and I need a haircut. This week, I'm chatting with Jordan Beck, the head of development for Hero for Hire Creative, a commercial and TV development animation studio. Now, in our chat, Jordan is going to share how he went from working at an infantry museum to fully producing and distributing the multiple award-winning independent feature film, Sergeant Stubby, including how he helped raise $25 million towards the show's budget. He's also going to share everything you ever wanted to know about how film distribution works in North America and what an everyday person can actually do to maximize their chance of success getting their film into traditional cinemas. Now, before we get into today's chat, I do have a sponsored message to share with you, and I'm still running the draw to win two free licenses of Clip Studio Paint, so tune in for details on how to enter. And if you didn't guess it already, this episode is also sponsored by Clip Studio Paint, which is the artist's app for tablets, computers, and smartphones, perfectly suited for drawing and painting and to create a wide range of content. With a wealth of unique features, it helps to create anything from illustrations like manga to concept art and animation. Whether professional or hobbyist, Clip Studio Paint's natural drawing feel, along with its comic, manga, and webtoon features, is loved by artists from around the world. Visit clipstudiopaint.net to learn more. And like I said, Clip Studio Paint is giving away two free licenses of their software to start creating your own illustrations, comics, whatever kind of art you enjoy. Two winners will be chosen at random and will win one Clip Studio Paint EX license, each valid for 12 months and compatible with Windows, Mac OS, iOS, Android, and Chromebooks, worth over $200 US. To enter, simply fill out your name and email in the form I've included in the description of this podcast, and I'll announce the winners next week. So stay tuned for that. Now, without further ado, let's dive in. Hi, Jordan. How Hi. are you doing? How's it going today? Oh, I'm doing fantastic right now. Fant uh, what is making you do fantastic? Like if an <laughs> average day is like, I'm pretty good. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm trying to put a really positive spin on a lot of things right now. Um, right. So we've got, we've got, you know, the, the world is going back into phase five in a, of an apocalypse. Uh, and, uh, and, and my house is being gutted for plumbing work. And yet I get to come on a podcast and talk about animation. So hey, that is fantastic. I don't have to Listen. deal with a plumber or a COVID test to do this. So <laughs> can you imagine I make you do a COVID test over Zoom just to make sure you do? Actually, funny story. I actually had COVID while doing uh, a podcast slash interview and it was not fun. I was like <laughs> on meds. I didn't want to like push the date because we already pushed it. It was not good. Don't get COVID, please. Oh, no. Yeah. Um. Okay, well, let's just jump into it. So you're a development yeah. guy. I want to know like, so you made Sergeant Stubby, which I think is amazing. And you had, you know, you, you, you said to me, like, you're a little bit beginner when you were doing that. Um, and you learned how to do everything in the world of distribution and development. So like, tell me the process of making something to it, getting on like HBO Max, for instance, like, how, <laughs> where does that start? How does, how does that begin? Like, what was your team like, like, et cetera? Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I, I promised you that we were going to go on a journey and, and we are because the only way to really start this story is kind of from the beginning. Um, <laughs> so once upon a time, uh, back in the halcyon days of 1985, I was born. Um, wow. I'm originally from uh, Oakland, California. And my parents wanted to find a, a small town, kind of like a Mayberry situation. And so my very eccentric parents moved to a town called Cuthbert, Georgia 
which is uh, 2,500 people in a peanut field um, about three hours south of Atlanta. So I grew up half and half between Oakland and Cuthbert. Um, and in doing that, I grew up, uh, my pr parents' preferred way of travel was a car. So I've crossed the country at least a dozen times in a car, um, seeing, wow. the, seeing the U.S. from a firsthand perspective. Um, and all of that really came into play and still continues to come into play because you get an appreciation for how big this place really is and how diverse the people are. And I don't mean just in terms of, you know, your basic demographics, but just the, the things that move people are very specific and very regional, um, depending on where you are in the country. And I, I think, you know, to help answer your question right off the bat, understanding those kind of regional differences and those specific nuances of language and characteristics that you, you get in East Texas versus Southern Iowa um, really help as you create media and you go into media production later. So that was my background as a, as a kid. And um, I wound up starting college courses at the junior college in Cuthbert that my mom was working at young. Um, so I was actually 12 when I started auditing college courses. And I finished high school by the time I was 15 and went into uh, my bachelor's program. Um, so I graduated from the University of Georgia when I was 19. And I was one of the first film studies majors. They had just stood up this film studies program. Um, and I knew that I wanted to go into filmmaking, but uh, the decision I, I made um, with my dad, who was an artist himself, and I would actually like sit in on classes when he was finishing his BFA when I was eight, sitting in on figure drawing classes and stuff. But, um, but I made the decision for film studies because there are a lot of programs that were sort of like a pre-professional track, almost like a trade track in a, in a BFA or a, you know, that, that get you from point A to point B. But I realized that I was more interested in how the medium worked so hmm. film studies, if you're not familiar with it or anybody listening isn't familiar with it, that's like history theory and criticism. So it's not so much how the, how the, um, the, the films are made, but why they're made and what works in the language of cinema and what makes cinema similar and different to other more traditional or other non-traditional art forms. Um, so that was my academic background and I was going to go to Cal arts and I was going to, you know, I wanted to work for Pixar or something. I wanted to follow that sort of career trajectory. And, um, I got my rejection letter from Cal arts saying we've never had a 21 year old or a 19 year old apply for grad school. The average age of applicant is 28. Uh, go get a job. So, oh, wow. They literally, literally just said like, go get a job. Yeah. They said that you have a great transcript, but no resume. And we want to have people who are going to be professionals in, in the arts. And we want to see that you have that kind of drive. So that's what CalArts told me. And that's what I did. Huh. Um, but I wound up in uh, still living in Georgia at um, the time, well, at the time still now as well. But uh, instead of just packing up and moving to California and becoming a waiter and hoping to make it big someday, um, I wound up as a musician. So hmm. I was a traveling musician and a freelance graphic artist for years. And that led to me, um, again, traveling a lot, seeing a lot more of the world, understanding a lot more of the, of the people and the entertainment landscape that works in different areas um, of the country. I wound up playing bass and lead guitar in an old timey country band that would travel the East Coast and play at Indian casinos in Miami or, you know, open for a, for a punk band at Club Hell in Providence, Rhode Island. Like those were, those were my formative professional experiences. I don't think that's what Cal Arts had in mind when they said, get a job, yeah. but it just turns out that way. Um, 
But that eventually led to me getting work with the National Infantry Museum at Fort Benning, Georgia, which is um, Fort Benning, Columbus, where I live now, um, is a 190,000 square foot, $110 million award-winning Smithsonian quality museum. Um, but it's centered around the United States Army Infantry uh, at, that trains at Fort Benning. And they had an IMAX theater there. So I wound up um, getting, uh, getting work working in IMAX and attractions hmm. for the National Infantry Museum, which involved film booking, which involved event planning, which involved live music and entertainment for certain things. It involved, uh, we had some, some games and simulators. So figuring out ways to make this museum fun yeah. and engaging yeah. was, was kind of my background. And through that, I met a documentary filmmaker who eventually said he wanted to make a World War I documentary. And over the years, we collaborated on that. And then he says, uh, after a few years, well, it's not a documentary anymore. Um, I found a story of this dog from Connecticut. And I think we would reach a bigger audience if we made the story of that dog as a feature length animated film. So, oh, wait a <laughs> so I again, it all started because I went to college young because I wanted to work for Pixar, not as an animator, but work in development and, and work in storytelling. Storytelling is a huge thing for me. And here's the opportunity in this most circuitous roundabout way to collaborate with a British filmmaker who lives in France, who has a studio headquartered in Ireland that wants to now make a feature length animated film and set up his U.S. base of distribution in Columbus, Georgia. So, but why did he ask you? Because you, you like because you were running the IMAX theater. Because because I was running the I, he and I met each other through the IMAX. Um, but then, as we got to know one another, that turned into a, a shared love for history and finding ways to make that engaging for other people. And um, so, it, and then he got to know more about my background and that I actually had a background in film and in in filmmaking but that had kind of gone on hiatus to do all of these other weird adventures oh and i forgot to throw in there that i'm also an army and or an officer in the army national guard um so i also have this background and it's sort of this weird venn diagram of entertainment mass entertainment and niche fine art and yeah. What was, what was your stage name when you were playing at these gigs? I'm just curious. So funny story. Oh, uh, no. I, I did wind up registered with the city of Columbus under the name Candy Divine uh, at one point. Candy Divine. When I was filling out because I was military underage. officer, yep. film extraordinaire. <laughs> so when I was filling out, Leave I was underage cars. when I started playing music because I came straight from my bachelor's program at 19 into being a, a dive bar musician. Um, because that's what you do when you graduate uh, very young with honors at uh, in a very, very liberal arts field is uh, you wind up as a dive bar musician. So um, I had to fill out a, a card in Georgia. They have what are called ABC cards, but basically it allows you to be like a server um, at a, at a, when you're below 21. Mm -hmm. And so I filled one out to become a musician and it asked me what name I dance under on the uh on the forum and i realized that there was another career that also used the same uh forms for it and so i just without he hesitating wrote down candy divine and later when i was getting a, a military security clearance they asked me if i had any known aliases and i actually had to disclose to the united states government 
wow. that um, I I was registered as a dancer named Candy Divine at one point. Wow. I I so, kind of want to explore the dancer Candy Divine a little. Like I feel like Candy Divine needs his own little. You path. know, every every <laughs> uh, four years, Candy Divine winds up running for something too, because there when you get down ballot and there are all of these you know random forestry commission and there's only one person running unopposed uh on the ballot then candy divine might get written in wow i yeah so <laughs> okay so let's let's bring so it back to yeah so now now that we went down that route you just had to ask the question i had to and, and I, I love and that you, you didn't expect there's going to be an like answer the, at the end of it the most unexpected answer <laughs> um yeah no so so i wound up uh the the filmmaker's name was richard um but richard uh, decided that he wanted to start an animation company called Fun Academy. Hmm. Um, and Fun Academy was headquartered between Ireland, Kinsale, Ireland, and Columbus, Georgia. And the film that had started its life as a World War I documentary that had now morphed into this animated feature was about the most decorated dog in American history. His name was Stubby. He's a little Boston Terrier, uh, brindle, pit bully mutt that was rescued off the streets of New Haven, Connecticut in uh, 1917 and wound up taking part in uh, World War I in the trenches. He was actually in theater for 18 months. He was wounded twice, received a posthumous Purple Heart. Um, after the war, he met three sitting presidents, went to the White House twice. Uh, he invented the halftime show after his stint on vaudeville. Um, so all of that is true. All of that is stubby. Wow. Look him up. It was one great thing about making that movie, incidentally, was that it was pretty hard to spoil it because there's a Wikipedia entry. So, I mean, I can't really spoil a historical film. Um, so when we made Stubby, we, um, another thing before I went into film studies, I was thinking I was going to be a theater major. Um, you know, that was kind of the goal. And then it, but the ultimate goal was to wind up in film. So I wound up in film studies anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, but we, I, I was close to several actors and musicians in the Columbus, Georgia area. And we did a table read. So we had a, they had a script when I came on board, but they wanted to do a table read and a scratch recording. So that way the art, the animatic could be done to a, to a full, um, called it like a radio play of the, of the film. And I recruited local musicians and local actors from Columbus. Um, Columbus is a music town from way back. And there are actually a number of not only musicians, but uh, recording studios, including the, um, the Loft is a premier music venue and Columbus State University has an audio technology department. So we collected artists or we collected actors um, who were able to perform the script, which wound up making it to the artists hands who were working on the animatic in France. And everybody who was part of that or most everybody who was part of that table read actually wound up in the final film. Amazing. So that was how I wound up a voice actor was... <laughs> So uh, let me just get this straight. Read. So uh, your friend Richard starts an animation production company just um, because he has this dream and that's all taken care of. And yep. your role is to gather uh, um, American resources that will play a part yep. in this. It was, it started with the, it started with just doing the table read and those actors wound up, including myself, wound up being in the feature final feature film. Um, I so was you, also, so you went from like, uh, organizing the IMAX theater to like renting places to bring people in to, yeah, like, yeah. To, to, to creating the, and, and rent, but also because Georgia is a huge film industry, um, we're the largest film shooting location in the world, but it's mostly like live action stuff. All the Avengers movies are filmed here and things like that. 
so there was really a taste for getting involved in mm. non-Atlanta to, yeah. to, to get involved with this. So we negotiated in-kind partnerships. So Columbus State University's um, uh, audio technology department donated a lot of time and resources um, wow. just to make this happen so we could put together a film that would be seen. Um, and while I'm dealing with the production, um, as I said, I was also a graphic artist during my freelance music time. So I wound up doing the American voice uh, direction. Um, and I also wound up doing the um, doing the 2D sequences in that film. So I was the the creative director for the 2D sequences. Wow. Um, but at the same time, we were setting up this production and distribution studio. So I was the, the vice president of communications for Fun Academy Motion Pictures, the distributor. And for doing that, I spent from 2016 to 2018 um, very much involved in the film distribution and sales process and learning how what you see gets to you. Yeah. So you're working full time at the museum still? No, 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 no. I left the museum for Fun Academy. So oh, that so funny, was a so funny cat is like totally yeah, paying your so, salary. 100%. Yep, wow. Yeah, that so. was a we we left. Um, I it was a it was a decision that had to be made. But it, absolutely. It's like this is an opportunity to be a part of the thing that I wanted to be yeah. a part of 10 years ago when I left college. So, where let's, did, so let's like, absolutely do this. A couple of questions. Like, why did Richard trust you so much to get things done other than your background in film when you went to school? And like, also, where do you start if you don't know anything? You're like, now we have a film being made. How do I like, who do I even yeah. contact? Like, how do I make connections? Like I'm sitting at home with my email open and Google search. Like, yeah. So um, the, he came to me already having made some contacts for the production itself. One of the things that originally started with the Georgia part um, was again, Georgia has this big film industry. What we learned is that Georgia did not have an animation industry to the scale that we needed to make stubby. Um, now there are some great animation studios in Georgia, but to do a full length CG feature, just didn't have anywhere to do that. Um, so again, he lives in France. He had made some connections in France that connected us to uh, Micros, which is a subsidiary of Technicolor. And Micros is headquartered in Paris, but also do all of their um, feature length animation in Montreal. Yeah. So uh, they actually made uh, Captain Underpants um, on the same production line as us. So if you look at the credits of Captain Underpants and the credits of Sergeant Stubby, uh, they're almost identical. And wow. then after that, Mikros did um, SpongeBob. And so again, a lot of the same artists kind of, but Stubby's is very strange anomaly in the middle of that sort of major studio service work. Um, so the, the making of Stubby was... I'm not going to say in hand, but there was already a plan for, okay, we'll write the script and we'll get it to these guys in Paris and Montreal and they'll make the movie. Yeah. Sounds easy. Yeah. Um, it's not, but it sounds easy. But the bigger question and what we had to solve here in the U.S. was how do we pay for any of this? What's our, what's our budget look like? How do you, how do you actually get to that point? Totally. And we, we did that, um, A, the reason you do, Paris and, and Montreal is government subsidies. So there's a lot of tax incentives to, to do the work in those areas, but also private investment. We actually raised, um, the film had a, a budget of like an all-in budget of $25 million. And we raised most of that. Yeah. I, I was going to um, ask about that because I looked at the Wikipedia earlier to be like, what is the budget of this movie? 
$25 million. And you raised that from private investors. Like you just went yep. around, we, you're like, hey guys, you know, do we, you we, knew, we, we put together a, a list of, um, of qualified investors and that list of qualified investors, most of whom were um, in Georgia, you know, so they were in Georgia or they were in Ireland, but there was no Hollywood mean, a list money. Of qualified investors, like oh, that gets into uh, like their available net worth and things like that. Like they had to, it, it, I, I don't want to get too far into that legal totally, yeah, yeah. Um, thing, but yeah. So it wasn't, it wasn't a Kickstarter. Like yeah, yeah, it yeah. wasn't a, I'm going to kick in five bucks. No, it was, it was people who were high net worth individuals who so saw the potential. Reaching out to like. Uh, you had a list of high net worth net yeah. individuals and, and who, who and we saying, knew or were were two or three degrees of separation from yeah. from this sort of team that we built. So you're like, um, invite me over for a really nice dinner and I'll yep. pitch you something. And, and by the end of it, it was yeah, that some of it was referred to as passing the hat around the country club. Um, wow. But it was I need to get in on this uh, group of <laughs> private investors. <laughs> I, I wouldn't recommend it. Um, (laughs) because well here's what's great so we made the film and we didn't have to raise all the 25 i mean again that's where you get into like the government incentives covered this and yada 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 but um with the money we raised the people we raised it from were not particularly into animation or even film they were into the idea of being part of something new um, and being part of something that would benefit the Georgia film industry or benefit Columbus as a part of the Georgia film industry or in Ireland, just being part of this new thing. Hmm. So that's why a lot of people got involved with Stubby. They liked the story. They liked that it was a new kind of story. It's the first ever animated feature to be based on a true story. Huh. Um, look it up. You know, other people will say like Mulan. Well, yes, there was a place called China, but... Um, <laughs> That was exactly what we were just talking about. So <laughs> give me one second. Yeah. So uh, Sergeant Stubby is the only animated film of its kind ever to be based on a true story um, because people say, oh, yeah, Mulan. But yes, that happened in China. That's that's about the extent of its true storiness. Um, so they the people who invested in our film invested in that that kind yeah. of um, that kind of idea. Like we're that- doing something totally new. Uh, we're it's based on a you know historically accurate thing that is very important to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Really, and we're doing dog. it from, and we're doing it from places that are totally unknown. And yeah, it's about a dog. I mean, like it's a you know dog lovers. Everybody who who donated was yeah. uh, or donated who who invested was certainly a dog lover. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was that was that piece of it. Okay, so now we know where it's going to be made. Now we've yeah. raised the money to make it. Yeah. But the biggest question of all is how is anybody going to see it? Yeah, and yeah, yeah. I'm super interested in figuring out or learning what how you did how you figured that out. <laughs> yeah. So um nobody really thinks of, of that part of the equation. And we were fortunate at, at first to um columbus was the headquarters of carmike cinemas before carmike was bought out by amc so it was the fourth largest in the in the country and um distributing uh or exhibition chain in the country and through some connections among the investor pool we brought in somebody who came with that exhibitor experience Hmm. um and so the thought was that we would reverse engineer exhibition to make distribution happen okay now, originally, the plan was to make the movie and then sell it. You make it, you take it to festivals, you sell it, and you, you know, hopefully, well, you definitely break even, you hopefully make a little bit of a profit. That was the goal. 
But after we started exploring the distribution process, a decision was made to just go for it, just swing for the fences and self-distribute and not sell the rights to the film, make it ourselves, get it in theaters ourselves. Yeah. From theaters, get it on to first run downstream, get it into home media, do all of that ourselves, total roll your own philosophy. And that is what we did. Um, And so what I learned, and I mean, this might get me in a little bit of hot water, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, A lot of people give studios guff. A lot of people like to say, oh, well, Hollywood's out of ideas. It's all remakes and sequels because the studios don't have any fresh thoughts or, or anything like that. And what I noticed, and this is in 2016 and 2017, is that's not really true. The issue is that exhibitors are the gatekeepers of what gets put into theaters. Um, Now, the exhibitors will tell you that they get strong armed into showing you certain things versus others because the distributors say, um, oh, well, if you don't take this movie, which you don't really want, then we won't give you this big blockbuster down the line or something. So there's certainly a push and pull between exhibition and distribution. But I learned a, a lot that we had a lot of people saying, wow, you're doing something new. You're doing something original. You're doing something fresh. We'd love to see that. But we don't know how many um, how much popcorn we can sell to it. Yeah. And so we're going to give basically favorable treatment because when you think of film exhibition, when you think of what happens in theaters, think of it as real estate. There's a finite amount of screens and exhibitors really don't know or care anything about the quality of film. They're not film lovers. They're, They're landlords. And they're landlords who really only make their money off of the concessions because they wind up having to split with more favorable terms towards the exhibitors in a lot of that. So, um, or towards the distributors, I'm sorry. So you wind up in a situation where the exhibitors only want to book things that they're certain to sell a lot of popcorn to. And because of that, what are the things that they think will sell a lot of popcorn? Remakes and sequels and big blockbuster tent poles. So the, the Hollywood establishment has really started making more of those because that was the stuff that was getting booked into the theaters. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, I, I kind of look at it like um, Forrest Gump was one of the biggest box office hits of 1994. There is no conceivable way that Forrest Gump is going to be a giant hit now because Forrest Gump is not that kind of movie. Yeah. It's not, you know, it, it's not, uh, a IP driven spectacle. Totally. Um, totally. So that's sort of my, my soapbox rant about that, but to okay. understand. Also like on yeah. that note, how are you getting conversations with exhibitors and distributors in the first place? You're like, so, hi, we were- I'm Jordan, big cinema <laughs> flex. Uh, can I put my movie in your theater? Well, what movie? wound up happening? Yeah, I mean, it kind of did, but what wound up happening with that is because we had people who came from exhibition yeah, that um, on our said. team, they basically were reaching out to their old peers and mm. then reaching out to the to the buyers who they used to or, or to the sellers who they used to buy from yeah. at the majors and saying, oh, I heard so and so just left Sony. Well, gotcha. let's bring him to Fun Academy. So and okay. so we our sales team, um, the sales team that we had for theatrical bookings for Stubby was comprised of X Warner, X Sony, X Disney. Um, really, really high level 
film sellers. So we were able to get through those initial barriers um, of the gatekeepers to say, okay, yeah, we'll give Stubby the real estate. Gotcha. So like, for instance, like I know people who are working on uh, like small studios and whatnot that are making independent feature films mm-hmm. right now. And their, their strategy is to sell it like your original strategy, like sell it to Netflix, whatever, take it to the film festivals. But would you say there's a possibility for them to go straight to theaters and try to get it in there? Or like, it sounds like you had kind of a special case going on where you, you know, you had the funding, you had the, the people who were in the network, et cetera. I mean, it was a it was a special case, I guess, but it was only special because we put together the right people. I mean, anybody else could do that. Um, they could follow this blueprint, but I'll get to why I wouldn't recommend it in a second. So <laughs> we we got the film, um, the, the real estate. They said, OK, you can have it. But what a lot of people don't realize also is that distributors have to pay to play their films in theaters. When they made the swap from 35 mil to digital, um, they couldn't make those integrations happen. I mean, the, when we swapped my IMAX theater from IMAX to a Christie laser projection system, that was a $2 million renovation and installation. So imagine AMC with 5,000 screens having to spend one to 2 million per screen. That just becomes untenable for them. Yeah. So the manufacturers and the digital integrators said, I tell you what we'll do. Instead of you renting a print from the distributor to show, which is what happened in the 35 mil days, um, instead, we will make, we'll give you, we'll front you the digital equipment and the distributor will have to pay you $1,000 for you to hit play the first time. Hmm. So you're not out of pocket booking a film and the distributor who's probably got a lot of deep pocket backing behind them won't notice to open on a 3000 screen thing, like a, like a Pixar movie opens on 3000 screens. That's going to cost Disney $3 million for those 3000 screens to hit play one time. Well, when you're already spending $130 million on a production and you're matching that one-to-one on marketing dollars. So you're $260 million into Moana. What's an extra three? Well, when you're fun Academy, you feel that extra three. Yeah. Um, and so that's what happened with our with our box office release on that film is we got it to we, we got 3000 screens booked with our name on them. Wow. But then we wound up having to pay for them. And once you pay for those screens, you need to be able to earmark five to ten thousand dollars per location yeah. in local marketing. Well, we spent all of our money on people hitting play. So, so budgeting over your marketing like. Yeah. And so the, the marketing budget got absorbed in that. And on top of all of that, I don't know if you remember, but in 2018, um, there was a big Twitter and Instagram thing where Robert Downey Jr. said, hey, we just saw Avengers Infinity War Final Cut. Wouldn't it be great if we could show that to people early? And then Chris Evans responded and he says, oh, yeah, I'd love to do that. And Mark Ruffalo gets involved. And then everybody in Infinity War tweeted out Avengers Infinity War opening April 27th. So it moved up by a week from its original release date. Now, a feature film, and I hope everybody's got their pen and paper out because, you know, these are the answers to the test. Um, (laughs) A box office released feature film needs six weeks at minimum to count as a first run. And you make the majority of your money in the first two weekends of that six weeks. Totally. Yeah. So when Disney moved up Infinity War, Warner Brothers had Rampage starring The Rock and a Big Monkey. 
that had been scheduled behind it. But they realized that Disney just stepped on their toes. So they spent like $130 million changing their release date up by two weeks and announcing a release date change. And their new release date for Rampage was the exact same day that Sergeant Stubby opened. So are you mad at Robert Downey Jr. for screwing over the entire launch of your film? No, I'm mad at The Rock's monkey more than anything. But even then, like, you can't stay mad at Dwayne Johnson or monkeys. Um, I That's think crazy, that, though, that a couple of celebrities like I don't. But who knows if it was part of like a plan? Well, it was. It was. It was totally schedule. like that was a we even noticed that year because Stubby was sort of an edutainment film that we were kind of earmarking for like, oh, we'll, we'll target field trips or school groups. And we noticed that Disney didn't have an Earth Day film that year because they always have like the Disney nature documentaries like chimpanzee or bears or whatever. They didn't have one that year. And then when the Avengers cast did that, we realized that's why Disney didn't have an Earth Day film this year, because they had that on. They just completely took the, the rest of the industry out of the loop. And what happens furthermore, when you go into what I was saying, where you got to have two weeks minimum clear and then six weeks for your first run, that meant that Avengers Infinity War opened exactly three weeks before the Han Solo movie, which opened exactly three weeks before uh, Incredibles 2, which opened exactly three weeks before Finding Dory. So Disney had the whole summer just completely blocked out for themselves. And because exhibitors are going to give preferential treatment to the things that will sell them the most popcorn. That was that. Um, so did you end up booking, you said you paid for 3000 theaters. Did you end up playing in 3000 theaters as well? Or? No, we were able to scale it back somewhat, but we were contractually obligated on some of those. So we still oh, opened no. wide in the U S and Canada in 1800 uh, screens, I think. Um, so it was a, it was a wide release. I mean, it did, it was a wide release from a, from a startup studio based in Columbus, Georgia. Um, but what wound up happening is the, um, after the opening weekend, when we weren't able to basically cover the, the necessary local marketing for all of those areas, we started getting pulled or pulled back to matinee only. Well, we have a kid's movie. What, who, what kids are going to see a three o'clock showing on a Thursday during the school year. Um, so that's why stubby for anybody who, who looks it up, you know, it's a a well-respected, well-regarded film that has a pretty notoriously low box office if it's known at all. And that's why, because the film was distributed in theaters in the age of the disposable tentpole blockbuster. Um, and so when you're talking about your friends who are trying to, you know, thinking about what they want to do with other films, There's a book that I recommend everybody read. And I hope this guy listens to this podcast, but his name is Ben Fritz. And uh, he wrote a book. Fritz. 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 Yeah, Ben Fritz. Um, And he wrote a book called The Big Picture. And it basically used the Sony email hacks to kind of like reverse engineer or break down the the modern age of the uh, studio blockbuster film. And he charts like how the MCU happened and everything. It's really interesting. But he wrote this book about exactly what I experienced. Wow. Um, And I read this book and the book was written and Stubby came out before COVID. But since COVID has happened, there were all of these like hand wringing think pieces about whether or not theaters are dead or whether or not, you know, the just like in the 50s, will TV kill the movies? And then it's, you know, will streaming kill the movies and everything? But I think what was happening is the movies were killing the movies because the theaters were only showing the biggest and the loudest and the most expensive things 
for diminishing returns um, and boxing out a lot of smaller original movies that people actually want to see, but which won't have as high a return on the snack counter. Totally. And that's where Netflix and Amazon and all of the streamers have really stepped in. Yeah, 100%. And picked up that stuff. Um, And one of the points he makes in the book is that the movie Fargo was the perfect movie for 1996. And the TV show Fargo is the perfect TV show for right now. And this show Fargo on FX would never have worked in the 90s. And that 90s movie would never be seen by anybody now until it made it onto Netflix or Hulu. Totally, totally. Um, I mean, so I, that's I totally that mimic that in my own habits. I used to see so many movies. And then lately, since like the sequels and blockbusters just come out, I just see like maybe one or two movies a whole year versus like, like years ago, I would see like, I don't know, like 10, 15, more than that a year. So like, yeah, I mean, I remember when I was growing up, I saw Gladiator eight times just because it was there <laughs> and it was four bucks to go see Gladiator. Okay, great. Um, but even then, like now you're, you're not going to see a small movie in the theater. And I find myself doing it. I go see movies in the theater that I don't really think I'm going to like. And then I leave them having not really liked them, but they were big and they yeah. were explodey. And you're thinking, like, okay, this is good enough. I'll accept this. Yeah. It's, and that's, you know, if he listens to this, congratulations, but I'm going to take a pot shot at uh, uncle Marty for a second, because when Martin Scorsese says that, um, that superhero movies are theme parks, yeah. Yeah, they are. What's wrong with the theme park? You know, but there that's what the the theatrical experience really is now is you're going to a theme park. And that's not because Marvel did something wrong. Um, it's not even that the exhibitors did something wrong. It's just the nature of the business and the way it, it, it's evolved. Yeah. But also um, like the big brands and companies are like, how can we turn this movie into merchandise and a theme park, for instance, and like yeah. everything else. And you can't take like a small indie movie or like something that's not a blockbuster and do that. So it makes sense. I feel yeah. Like- and I mean, you, you hear the, the term for it was transmedia and that's still a term that's used, but now everybody's talking about the metaverse. You know, you got to have the metaverse and you got to have the metaverse go. I don't know what the hell a metaverse is to be honest, but you know, I use it a lot in, at work because um, everybody else is, and you just kind of, you know, say it. Until- well, Facebook is loving you right now. They're like, you don't even know what it is. And he's talking about it. Great. I don't know what it is, but Hey, you know, we're for it. Um, I feel like you've given me like a whole like list history slash like textbook slash like lecture series on how this all works. And it's been amazing. Um, but I do. And like, I feel when you were like, there's going to be a test at the end. I'm like, probably yes. (laughs) I want to, okay. So like, I want to also talk about, uh, your career too. And like your head of development now at hero for, um, hero for hire and like how that's gone and how you got there, because like your journey from, you know, graduating so young and so early to being a musician, to being a museum guy, to being a producer slash uh, coordinator slash distributor extravaganza. And now you're like working full-time professionally at a studio. Tell me how you. Yeah. So I kind of realized, um, you know, and in the age of COVID and I I was promoted to chief operations officer for fun Academy after box office, when we realized, okay, so this box office strategy was, we, we did it correctly. It was just the wrong thing to do. Um, and (laughs) there were some warning signs that we just, uh, you know, I was kind of waving my hand and, you know, didn't, didn't really get totally heated on, but I mean, Hey, we were, we're building the plane as we were flying it. 
Um, yeah, I mean, it's like, and, congratulations for going so far. That's absolutely phenomenal. Like to go from like, Hey, I'm just like yeah. operating an IMAX thing to being like, now I have national distribution on this film that like I helped make that's yeah, that I'm in, you know, I mean, in. like that millions of kids don't like me because I'm the bad guy in the movie. And so um, I'm the one who's mean to dogs. So uh, yeah, people the world over don't like me. Um, but I kind of realized all of, all of that, you know, long, long trajectory was sort of my, my personal growth as well. When we're talking yeah. about things like how, what, when I, when I was talking about how exhibition has changed and how production has changed, I also started noticing my own viewing habits. And that also was around the time that I had my son and, you know, how do we engage and what do we do? And when uh, COVID hit and we were all in quarantine, um, I realized that the best movie I saw in all of 2020 was Red Dead Redemption 2. Uh, it just happened to be 200 hours long and I was the main character. But that was filmed entertainment. Yeah. That was a cinematic experience that was using pre-recorded dialogue and, and giving people an opportunity to engage at their pace in their way with their entertainment. And that's what I wanted to be a part of hmm. going forward. Um, films are great. I got nothing against movies. Um, and obviously I have nothing against theme parks or anything else, but I feel like entertainment doesn't have to be confined to the 20th century hierarchy of, you know, film is great. Like a two hour movie is somehow the pinnacle of this art form. That's just yeah, simply totally. not true. Video games get like no representation for being yeah. that at all. And, and everybody plays them. And there's and like, these games have bigger budgets than film sometimes like, and they're, and they like bring in bigger dollars. returns. Yeah. Now they're stretched totally. over a different time, but yeah. the, but they're, it's the same thing to me. Um, and that's what I started looking for opportunities to do is get involved in a, a new, a new studio and kind of reset myself in a way mm. that I thought would go more in accordance with that kind of mentality. And that's where I found Hero for Hire. And um, I met Allison and, and Evan, the, the founders of Hero for Hire, and saw what they're doing, um, both in an original content space, which is sort of what I gravitate towards, but also in the advertising and the brand work that they do. Because just because it's a client piece doesn't mean it can't be an entertaining client piece. Doesn't mean yeah. that it isn't you know, actually a narrative storytelling device. It's just a narrative storytelling device that has a singular purpose. And that purpose isn't necessarily to sell popcorn. It's to sell student loans or something. Um, but, you know, those are those are opportunities that exist in modern media production and release that I, I was absolutely all about. Like, let's let's meet everyone where they live, myself included. Like, yeah. what, how am I consuming entertainment? So, um, OK, so how long have you been there now? So I started with Hero for Hire in September. Wow. Okay. So pretty, pretty fast. So like, yeah, in that, so you're head of development. Yep. What is, what does that mean? Because like what you just described to me sounds very interesting in trying to create more personalized, entertaining forms of advertisements and other types of things to, I need more student loans. Like everybody needs more student loans. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think, um, it's, it's really kind of what you just said, but there are two facets to the studio it was founded in uh, 
2009 or 2010 um, in that time frame, because Evan had co-created a series for PBS Kids Go called Fizzy's Lunch Lab. Hmm. Uh, and Fizzy's actually was a three-time Emmy nominee, and it was one of the first uh, PBS Kids web content things. So really on the vanguard of what I'm talking about, like theaters aren't where you consume yeah. media. Yeah. And I even, when I when my son was born, I had a Samsung Galaxy phone that came with kids mode on it. And it was preloaded with all these Fizzies videos. And I'd never heard of Fizzies, but I still know every word to one of those damn songs. And so cut to uh, seven years later, I meet Evan and I go, you're the guy who did this to me. I hate you're you. the reason that that song is still stuck me. in my head. Um, <laughs> Pistols at dawn. So, uh, but anyway, yeah. So Fizzies is a great show. And they started the studio to produce Fizzies. But then if you got a production line, let's use it for yeah. other things. And that's where we started doing a lot more branded content for, for other folks. Um, but the original ideas have still been coming out. Some of those have been produced uh, as, as content for others. So like um, we do a lot of work with Sesame Workshop mm, I and yeah. really they cool. have, yeah. And they have digital content. Like there's uh, the character, Abby Kadabi. Um, we pitched and they produced and we produced a series called uh, Abby's Advice for YouTube. Um, so it's sort of like a takeoff of Dear Abby, but starring Abby. So even though that's a Sesame Street show or a Sesame Workshop product, we actually originated that and pitched it to Sesame. So um, one of my questions is about, you yeah. know, because some studios, the head of development is purely, not purely, but like a big part of their job is to take incoming pitches, sort them out, see what works for the studio, and then uh, see if they want to produce it. Um, or another take yep. on that is to do your own internal research demographics, look for new opportunities, look at the technology on real engine, et cetera, and try to create things that you think are viable to sell in today's marketplace. Like where is, where is, where we're, are you fitting into this? Or is we're definitely, well, so here for hire in general is on the latter side of that. Um, because for the last decade, Allison and Evan and the rest of the team have been developing original content yeah. um, that needs to be seen that that is is really good and has a lot of legs behind it web series digital content regular linear series feature film um and so i'm developing those uh for for pitch to networks to streamers to co-producers a lot of people you'll see in our industry who have been doing production service for a long time are getting into Okay, we've been making stuff for Disney and DreamWorks and Netflix. Can we now we want own? to make no, yeah yeah now we want to make our own stuff too, um, and so we're really just part of a larger trend. But we're trying to work with like-minded studios and peers to to develop those kind of relationships. Um, but yeah, so we're we're not really accepting pitches just because we got a slate of our own to get out the door first. So I think it's incredible that, you know, since 2009, your studio has been growing and doing some amazing projects and, you know, getting your work out there. Can you walk me through how, you know, how you develop something to the point where you know it's going to be successful? Like, are you doing like, okay, ages three to four, five to six, whatever, this is popular with them right now. These are the kind of psychological, uh, educational hits that we need to make and then forming something out of there. Or is it like, you know, I don't know, I have a cool idea. Let's let's figure it out. And like, how are you, how are I, you manufacturing success? Because, you know, you got to keep the lights on. You got to, you got to exactly. keep your job, et cetera. Well, luckily we have a production services line that's, I'm not going to say unparalleled, but certainly world-class. I mean, there's a lot of great stuff out there that I'm sure a lot of the people who will be listening to this are a part of making. And we're, we're all in that same boat of making really great stuff for people. So that helps keep the lights on so we can keep the idea factory churning. Um, but what, 
I think we've sort of focused on, and again, I'm sort of new in, in getting caught up in some of the original concepts that were already hmm. available. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of those start from the idea and then finding the audience. One thing that I've always believed, um, and this goes back to Fun Academy and Stubby and even you know music before then, there is an audience for everything. Not everything is for every audience though. So be realistic and feasible. Yeah, sometimes the audience is your mom and that's, that's fine. Yeah. Hey, if you want sometimes to see the it, then clearly. 4 billion children for Cocomelon and that's, yeah. that's and, fine. And that's fine, you know, but like having a, having a realistic, um, a self-assessment is I think the first step in anything, because mm. if you like it, then you know that there's an audience because you're not the only person um, in the world, but finding the other one of you might be a little bit tricky. So, okay, um, so this is interesting to me. So yeah. you're like, let's start with the idea first. And I like it. Now, mm-hmm. who's the audience? And and when you like take a realistic third person approach to it and you're like, okay, the audience is like very nuanced. It's like people who like this very weird type of humor who are like five years old and live in a specific place. Maybe this isn't the best idea to put forward. Or yep. you're like, you know, this idea seems to be generally liked by lots of people and blah, blah, blah. And there's a hole in the market space for like, kids who like to plant trees or something like that. You're like, let's put forward this idea and this other idea, like let's shelve it. Like, is this kind of how you're- Yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't even have to be shelved, shelved, but it's just a, I can't reach the people who need this. Mm. Like I, you, you, if you want this idea to go, and this is here for hire, but this is anything really. If this is an idea you want to put forward, is it, is it feasible? Is it rational? Is it acceptable? You know, all of the, all of the sort of planning metrics that go into that, but when all is said and done, can we reach the audience that needs, can we make what you want to make? Can we afford to make what it is you want to make? And if we can afford to make what you want to make, can we afford to reach the audience that you need to reach for, to get what you put into it back, like to make your money back? Um, and if you can't, is there somebody who might, you know, want to buy it or, or pay us for it? Odds are, if it's super niche, then the answer is going to be no, because yeah. anybody who has that kind of money to acquire is going to be looking at things that acquire according to their thing. Yeah. Back when I was with Fun Academy, I stepped my foot. We, we started developing some TV. Um, and that's kind of where this itch that uh, I'm scratching with Hero for Hire came from. But I went to the kids screen uh, summit in Miami and it was right before the apocalypse. So it was in February of 2020 and um, nobody really knew what coronavirus was. It was just kind of like, <laughs> oh yeah, the Chinese guys all had to pull out because bliss. I couldn't travel. And yeah. then like, as soon as I got back, it was, you know, just done. But, um, but what I learned there that I think useful for other creators is TV is very segmented and very regimented. And what I mean by that is not that there isn't an opportunity to get different things seen, um, but especially in the children's space, the the broadcaster or the network or the streamer or whomever has a specific thing they're looking for. And that specific thing they're looking for is projected out like two years. So they're saying, okay, based off of what we have in the pipeline, by the time your show gets off the ground, I'm going to need an ensemble comedy with themes of diversity and inclusion um, for girls ages four to seven. Yeah. Well, okay, great. Now I know that you don't want to hear what I have to sell you because that's, that's not it, you know? 
Um, so in the, in the world of TV and especially in, in children's television, that is one thing to, to bear in mind. Um, and again, why I wouldn't recommend necessarily doing what we did with Stubby either of just, oh, well, we'll, you know, put it into theaters ourselves or we'll, we'll self-distribute. I mean, yeah, you can do that depending on what the content is, but just realize what the, what an investment to make something successful looks like totally. and what the buyers on the other side are looking for. A thousand percent. Yeah. It's, it's like, you can get caught in the weeds of animation and storytelling is super fun. But then when you're done, it's like, where is this going? Who's seeing it? So tell me, you know, now that you're in this role, like what is what is 99% of your actual role end up doing? Like, are you putting together pitch materials, setting up these meetings, like, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, like- it's, it's, it's a lot of pitch materials and a lot of meetings are the majority of the role. Um, you know, what winds up happening that's frustrating about doing that is it's sort of a one-way street at times. Yeah. Like you put together the deck, you send out the deck, and then the ball's in somebody else's court and you don't know what else. It's just in their email junk sitting for yeah, months. And, and then so you follow then you up just- and they're like, who? Yeah. Or you follow up too much and it's like, go away. And so <laughs> yeah. there's that very delicate balance of getting to know the people that you're dealing with Yeah. on that. Um, I hate to say it's sales because it's, I mean, yeah, it's a well, sales it is, job, but it's, it's, it is a sales job, but I'd like to think of it as something more creative than just like the fuller brush door to door guy. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's, it's getting to know people and it's still storytelling. It's just storytelling with a specific kind of focus. Um, but uh, working on some of our projects, doing some, doing some writing, doing a lot of writing, not only pitch materials, um, but screenwriting, yeah, wow. um, is, is so you part have to have my... pretty, a pretty diverse range of skills then. Cause like screenwriting, like putting t- all this well, stuff, like it also sounds yeah. like one of your main skills is like super coordinator. I'm wondering like, why did, um, you know, when hero for hire hired you, why did they trust you were going to be the guy for this job? Like what's the number one thing that you bring to the table? That, <laughs> um, I uh, think. We got to hire this. We got to hire Jordan for it. I, I think the story that I kind of went through earlier and all of these different things, um, you know, some people are real hustlers. Some people are real grinders and other people are, you know, sort of just keep swimming. Yeah. And I kind of think of myself a little more on the latter side of that, because as long as I'm keeping myself refreshed and interested, um, I'm picking up new experiences that I'm happy to share with anybody. Okay. I'm happy to tell absolutely anybody how these things are done and how the sausage is made. Um, I've been a writer for, for a long time. And so that's sort of, uh, sort of a, a secondary skill set that I brought to it, but I'm having a great time doing writing. Um, and because I came from a world of startups and nonprofits, I have social media marketing and, and communications experience. And so I wind up doing a lot of that as well, which is not yeah. a common development task. Um, but if you're talking to somebody on Instagram or Twitter, it's probably going to be me for hero <laughs> for hire, just because that's something that, again, I have, uh, that it, as part of this sort of, you know, going back to road trips across the country when I was 10, yeah. um, just figuring out how to talk to people in a language that they appreciate using the, the tools at your d- disposal. Sounds kind um, of like you we're also looking for a place that was kind of smaller because you could do more because like, you know, if you're at a giant studio, you might be in like a cookie cutter position versus like, it sounds like you enjoy doing a lot of different things. Like you're the social media guy, you're writing, you're pitching. Yeah. You know, I've never not in my entire professional experience, it's always been in startups and small businesses um, or independent freelance music, graphic design type stuff. The exception to that is the army national guard, which is a very big business, but that's a whole other thing. Like we're not talking about them. So 
Um, but yeah, the museum was a startup uh, that nonprofit. Fun Academy was a startup for profit, hopefully, um, you know, but we're going to make it happen some way or another. So I was actually looking to jump to uh, like do it. I mean, there's a term for it now. When I was going through and found Hero for Hire, it was called the, it's still called the great uh, resignation, right? Um, so that's like a term that social scientists are using for people who have just kind of wound up realizing during COVID how, you know, creatively unfulfilled they are with yeah. their with their jobs. And um, I was looking for a big studio. I was looking for a big company, maybe not a film company, but maybe I would jump into video games or jump into TV or cartoons or something. Um, but I think that when, when I found Hero for Hire and met Allison and Evan, there was sort of a water seeks its own level thing going on too. Like, I feel good about this. I'm comfortable with the small business thing. That's just, you know, sort of built into who I am. What is great now, though, is that Hero for Hire is not a startup. Yeah. So it's still a small business, you know, or growing into a mid-sized business. We might even be a large studio eventually. If we get yeah, some of these projects not, off yeah, the yeah. ground, we're going to have to scale up. I mean, there's going to be, you know, sort of that natural growth progression that happens, which is great. But it still operates on a very, like you said, you have a diversified skill set and we're going to try to use it all. Um, rather than wind up just like this is your cubicle, and yeah. I don't know. I think those of us who were who were raised in the age of uh, of Fight Club and Office Space just have a problem. I mean, I you can't see it. There it is. There's my red swing line stapler. Oh my goodness! My desk. So, like, <laughs> yeah. So I mean, there's just sort of like an inherent mistrust of the cubicle that we were totally, kind of totally come. Um, so let me ask you this: You know, 19 year old Jordan had these aspirations to go to CalArts and have a glorious Pixar career. And now 30 something year old Jordan um, is working, you know, in pitching and developing TV shows and and advertisements and stuff. Uh, What is success for you and how do you feel about where you've come to? So for me, I mean, I think success for everybody is going to be different, right? And yeah. there are the things, what, what motivates you as a person? Does power motivate you? Does money motivate you? Does, you know, fame and glory motivate you? Um, yeah, what is Jordan's answer? And, and I think for me, it's, of those three, I'd probably go with the third. But in, in reality, it's um, getting to tell stories. Yeah. That's it. And I know that that sounds like trite or cliched, but it's really true because I'm not it's really because it is true. Yeah. I mean, I'm not I, me personally. I'm not format specific. Yeah. Um, I've worked in live action. I've worked in documentary. I've worked Cave in theme drawings, attractions. I've worked in. Code. Yeah. You know, I've worked in I, I was a, a, an exotic dancer, um, apparently. <laughs> so, you know, to me, it's just are you finding a way to communicate an idea to people? Yeah. Um, for me, some people that success is going to be contingent on it being their idea. Like I'm going to be the originator. I'm going to tell people, you know, this is my truth and I'm going to speak it. Um, you know, there are the guys like, I, he's a terrible example, but I got to throw it out like Woody Allen um, who made a, a movie every year for like 30 years. <laughs> now we can debate whether or not they were good or whether or not Woody Allen is a particularly great person, but that kind of person has these stories or Tyler Perry is a better example, right? He just is so prolific a writer. I'm not that prolific a writer. I'm more interested in finding the story and whether that's like, if that's yours, okay, what can we do with that? You know, let's, let's tag team this. What, what can I do to help? 
Um, so yeah, the stuff that I've fallen in with here for hire is stuff that were Allison or Evan's ideas or ideas that brands have said, Hey, we need something that fits this. What can we do? And I'm happy to help tell that story. Um, you so know, it sounds helping... like you've kind of fallen into the thing that you realized that you wanted this whole time. Yeah, it really is. I mean, and that's where, you know, 19 year old me, Netflix didn't exist when yeah. that happened. I mean, <clears throat> video games were, were still, you know, but not, I think it, I think it existed, but like as a DVD, like mail service. Cause I remember getting, Netflix Oh no, I'm like older. I was no, like, I'm, I'm older than you. So. Only about a couple of years. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, no, but like, yeah, you're right. It wasn't long after I graduated college that like I had the blockbuster subscription because I thought Netflix will be a flash in the pan, but blockbuster yeah, right. that's going to stay. Netflix has been around since 1997. So, oh, wow. Uh, there you go. Wow. So yeah, that's the, um, I still have uh, Stephen King's Kingdom Hospital in its blockbuster envelopes that I never sent back. I wonder if they're ever going to find <laughs> That's out. That's why they went bankrupt. That was it. The late fees that I did. They're like, pay. where's this guy? He owes us $28 million. So we don't. <laughs> it's a good TV show. Uh, well, it sounds, yeah. it sounds, I, I love that you've reached this like state and you know, this opportunity sounds super exciting for you, especially because it's like new and, and like fresh and it's like, you're exploring it and it's, and it's amazing. I'm wondering like, you know, what's maybe is like maybe a final question, like what's next for you? And well, maybe it's my second final question. What's next for you right now? Yeah. So, I mean, the next step is we've been pitching pretty regularly since September, but it's a, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Yeah. Um, totally. So I, I would love to see. Us Can you imagine only... if you would get instant feedback, you pitch in the next day, they're like, yes or no. And not like yeah. six months later, know. they're like, can you, can we have a meeting? <laughs> yeah, I know. Like, can we, yeah. Four months later. Oh, Hey, yeah. Um, we just took a look at this thing that you forgot you emailed us. Um, but yeah. So, so for me, I think what'll be interesting is if we get one of these larger scale original projects off the ground. Yeah what will be next for me and what will be next for hero for hire. Yeah. Um, you know, we've been managing our own production on service work for a long time, but now all of a sudden, if we're doing co-productions with somebody else and it's going to be on a you know show that's on a major streamer, um, you know, now that's suddenly going to change the business model and that will be totally. very interesting, uh, to, to be a part of, I mean, you know, damn, I'm in a startup again at that point, but I've, I've been here before. It's fun. It's the swimming. It's the swimming attitude, right? Exactly. Just keep swimming. Okay. My last question is, you know, if somebody's listening and they're like super enthralled by the whole distribution and like development and everything. And they're like, what, what is something they can do? Just thinking back from your own journey, what is something they can do like right now or think about like after they listen to this, that will lead them on to a path to get them somewhere in the same spot as you? Like, what is something that they can do immediately? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, you know, I think that having, if they are a creator, um, keeping, being actively engaged on the, in the platforms that matter, you know, having your YouTube, having your TikTok, mm -hmm. whatever your medium is, or your media rather, I should say, um, and finding the ways that that can get taken to the next level in terms of, I don't know if legitimate is the right word, but certainly professional um, experience. So the kids screens of the world, you know, how do I, if, if you can, if you're a YouTube creator, how can you get that YouTube creation to a point that you're ready to start pitching it at a kid's screen? Yeah. Um, how like can taking, you... taking your art, which is fun and exciting to do, but, yep. but thinking about it in like a industry professional sense, like how can I turn this into something that yeah, how can, can what work are... with? And that's really difficult to, to say as a blanket statement, because there are always 
a, a different set of circumstances wherever you're located um, that can be hyper local or hyper space, um, yeah. you know, and they can, but, but knowing and doing the analysis and research, that's the thing that I think is the most important, doing the analysis and the research into your own viewing habits and the professional organizations and the professionals who are creating the media that you're consuming. Interesting. So being like, you know, I love watching this YouTube channel or this show on Netflix and then going, okay, who's the production company that made this? Who's the production company that made this? Who's the guy? Oh, this development executive is on Twitter. I wonder if I follow them, if they're going to talk about what they do. Yeah. Um, and Or like and, connect with them on LinkedIn or something. And connect and like on LinkedIn like, and do, hey, like, do stuff like that. But I think yeah. that you'll that's find a, a lot of like development a, people like talking about what we do. That's why um, the podcast exists. Hello. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we like talking about what we do because nobody ever asks. Nobody has ever once asked the question, how does film distribution work? It has well, never I hope been done. That I'm the first person. And and so that is a that is a question that I love, love having a chance to, to delve into. Amazing. So maybe a first step can even be like, listen, I think this is interesting to me. I'm going to reach out to Jordan back on his Instagram and yeah. just shoot him a message be like, Hey, that was super interesting chat. Like maybe we can, I don't know, chat further. Here's some questions. Yeah. I actually yeah. think what I'm... you said is super uh, easy and smart. Just like whatever you're watching, whatever you're interested in, just like look at the credits and yeah, that's why they're there. Those. Yeah, totally. <laughs> you know? I mean, it's so funny when you're in the industry, like credits are so important to you because that's how you get jobs and stuff. But when you're yep. out of the industry, like unless you're a film buff, you, you leave at the credits, right? Like I, one thing Marvel did that I, I think everybody really owes them a debt of gratitude is they made people start sticking around through the credits. Yeah. And like they made that they changed consumer behavior oh. with with their end credit sequences. Yeah. Um, now, people still aren't reading. They're just hanging or, out. It's but, entertaining, you know, but still, you never know. What ha- like, even if one person is like, oh, there's real people. Like, that's kind of what happened to me. I was like, there's real people behind this? Like, that's strange. This isn't magic? Oh, okay. Interesting. Cool. Well, Jordan, um, are there, is there anything you wanted to touch on that we haven't talked about? No, I mean, I, I really appreciate this opportunity. And I just want to say, you know, um, well, I know you'll give the shout outs for it, but I'll go ahead and, and steal <laughs> a little bit of your thunder. <laughs> um, so everybody, please feel free to to like, follow, share, comment. Uh, Hero for Hire, we're on all of the platforms. Um, Instagram is, and Facebook are Hero for number four numeral. So Hero for Hire Creative. And Twitter uh, has to be different. So that's H4H creative. Um, but, you know, we, we, before I came on board, those were kind of there, but dormant. And we're really trying to make an active push um, to, to become more engaged on those social spaces because that helps us in our development and outreach. Of course. Yeah. Um, not just waiting for the brand agency to find us. Amazing. Well, Jordan, thank you so much for coming on the chat. It's been an absolute pleasure to. You know, I feel like you gave me like distribution 101 through your own experience, which was super interesting and amazing. Like, I, I think it's incredible that you went through all that and now you're doing stuff that you love to do. So that's congratulations. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me today. Yeah, of course. And, um, you know, check out Hero for Hire on Instagram and Facebook or H4H on Twitter. And of course, you can also follow Jordan on Instagram at Dr. Underscore Magnifico. And I'll include all those links in the description of this chat. And thank you so much for listening. That's all for now. Okay, bye. The music for this podcast was composed by Will Farmer and the graphics by Daniel Abensauer. I encourage you to look them up if you enjoyed their work. 